0: My name is Curtis Miller, and while I did approve this message, don't worry, no one's running for political office here. This is The Backdrop for Pomona Valley Church. Welcome to The Backdrop, everybody, where the political chat is going to continue for a bit, We are in Jeremiah chapters 21 and 22 this week, and if for some reason you haven't listened to the sermon I preached this past weekend from that text, doing so would probably give some helpful context to the discussion we're going to have in uh, the second half of this podcast. We will cover a couple odds and ends from those chapters like we usually do on The Backdrop. But Meredith and I also thought we might use some of this podcast time to expand upon and give a couple more examples of what practically we mean when we say that following Jesus was and is political. But first, to Jeremiah chapters 21 and 22. One of the things I kind of alluded to this Sunday but didn't explore in detail was the use of the Torah in these chapters. It starts with the representatives from King Zedekiah who come to Jeremiah referring to Exodus, saying in chapter 21, verse 2, that maybe Yahweh will act on their behalf in accordance with his wonders. This is referring to verses like Exodus three twenty which is just one example of this phrase appearing in the Torah, which says, and I will send out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders that I shall do in their midst. And Jeremiah's response is basically, oh, I can, I can quote from Exodus too. In verse 5 of chapter 21, Jeremiah says on God's behalf, I myself will do battle against you with an outstretched hand and a strong arm which is an inversion of verses like Exodus 6, 6, which says, I am Yahweh. I will take you out from under the burden of Egypt, and I will rescue you from their bondage, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great retributions. And maybe to highlight the reversal that is coming from what Israel has come to expect, Jeremiah reverses how God's power is normally described. Usually in the Torah, you find something like Deuteronomy 5:15, And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and Yahweh your God brought you out from there with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. But Jeremiah says God will now fight against them with an outstretched hand and a strong arm. He's reversed the adjective. It means the same thing, of course, but reinforces the reversal that's coming. So that's kind of fun. If you're not a Judean, I suppose. Then in verse eight of chapter 21, we read to this people, you shall say Yahweh has said this, here am I presenting before you the way of life and the way of death, which is an obvious parallel to the choice we find in Deuteronomy chapter 30 verses 15 and following, which tells of Moses's final words to the people of Israel before they enter into the promised land. Those verses say, see, I have set before you today, life. And good and death and evil that I charge you today to love Yahweh, your God, to go in his ways and to keep his commands and his statutes and his laws. And you shall live and multiply and Yahweh, your God, shall bless you in the land into which you are coming to take hold of it. And if your heart turns away and you do not listen and you go astray and bow to other gods and worship them, I tell you today that you shall surely perish You shall not long endure on the soil to which you are about to cross the Jordan, to come there to take hold of it. I call to witness for you today the heavens and the earth, life and death I set before you, the blessing and the curse, and you shall choose life so that you may live, you and your offspring, to love Yahweh your God, to heed his voice, and to cling to him, for he is your life. Obviously, we know the choice the people have made, at least in Jeremiah's day, and it isn't life it's death. But Jeremiah then does an interesting reversal here as well, because the choice Jeremiah is offering is not between life in the land and death outside of it, like in Deuteronomy, but rather death in the land and life outside of it. Those who stay in the city to fight the siege will die. Those who willingly go off into exile will live. The choice in Deuteronomy, Jeremiah seems to be saying, has already been made. It's too late to change your mind there. Now, the question is, what are you going to do going forward? Since God is fighting against you and the fate of Judah and Jerusalem are sealed, there's a new choice before you. And in this new choice, you can again choose life if you listen to God's words, or you can again choose death. It's up to you. And then another reference to Deuteronomy is in chapter 22, verses 8 and 9. They say, many nations will pass by this city and will say each person to their neighbor, why did Yahweh act in this way to this great city? And they'll say, on account of the fact that they abandoned the covenant of Yahweh their God and bowed down to other gods and served them. Now in chapter 29 of Deuteronomy, when the side effects of abandoning the covenant with God is discussed, it says this, in something that's quite similar to the words from Jeremiah that we just heard. This is Deuteronomy 29, verses 23 to 25. All these nations will say, For what reason has Yahweh done this to this land? What is this great smoldering wrath? And they will say, For their having abandoned the covenant of Yahweh, the God of their fathers, which Yahweh sealed with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they went and worshipped other gods and bowed down to them, gods that they did not know. It's almost a direct quotation. As we've seen before in this book, Jeremiah wants to give the people no wiggle room whatsoever to say, hey, why didn't someone warn us this was going to happen? You were warned, Jeremiah is saying. Again and again, you were warned. And exactly what God said would happen has happened. And then the last reference to the Torah that we will mention today, in the verses where God condemns the palace renovation project of King Jehoiakim, we can hear some resonance with the words about kings in Deuteronomy 17, verses 16 to 20, which say this, Only let him, the king, not get himself many horses, that he might not turn the people back to Egypt in order to get many horses. And let him not get himself many wives, that his heart not swerve, and let him not get himself too much silver and gold. It's safe to say that few, if any, of Israel's kings listened to this. So that's a rundown of some of the echoes of the Torah that show up in these chapters of Jeremiah, which serve to reinforce that they have been warned about all of this, and they have not listened. But now I want to turn, like I said, to a few other examples of what we mean when we say that following Jesus is political. We talked about this in the sermon this past week and gave a couple of examples, but there are so, so many more. And I'm by no means going to get to everything today. And even what I do get to, it's going to be a very brief surface level engagement with it. But what I do hope to do here is to say, okay, if God cares about the society that we build together, the political policies, structures, and systems that form that society, then what might align with or not align with God's idea of justice? What parts of scripture might inform how we think about some of the political questions of our day. And in each of these, while I'm not going to advocate for particular specific policies, I am gonna try and highlight some principles that must influence the policies that we as followers of Yahweh should support. Our first topic is one of the highest profile issues currently, and that's racial justice. The Bible makes clear that God's people are intended to include and will include people of all races, tribes, nations, and so on. That's a theme that shows up in Genesis in God's words to Abraham. It shows up in revelation and everywhere in between. And so when we combine that care for all people with the reality that in our communities today, minorities, especially the black community are among the most vulnerable groups in our society, then what we have is a current political reality that conflicts with scriptural understandings of justice. Our society is not reflecting the justice that God would want, in other words. There's a reason that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was particularly fond of the book of Jeremiah, because of what it says about justice for the vulnerable, and especially the poor. In fact, one of the main initiatives Dr. King was working on when he was murdered was called the Poor People's Campaign, which was advocating for better paying and more stable employment for the poor. I mentioned this weekend that in Israel, every seven years, servants were supposed to be set free, but it's actually a bit broader than that. It also includes any debts or loans being forgiven every seven years. I'm going to read a fairly long chunk of Deuteronomy chapter 15, starting in verse seven, because it's important for what we are talking about here. We read there, if there should be someone in need among you, you shall not harden your heart and clench your hand against your brother who is in need. But you shall surely open your hand to him and surely lend to him enough for the need that he has. Watch yourself, lest there be in your heart a base thing, saying, well, the seventh year, the year of remission is near, and you look meanly at your brother who is in need and do not give it to him. And then he calls to Yahweh against you, and it be an offense in you. You shall surely give to him, and your heart shall not be mean when you give to him. For by virtue of these things, Yahweh your God will bless you in all your doings and in all that your hand reaches. For those in need will not cease from the land. Therefore I charge you, saying, You shall surely open your hand to your brother, to the poor, and to those in need in your land. Should your Hebrew brother or sister be sold to you, They shall serve you six years, and in the seventh you shall send them out from you free. And when you send them out from you, you shall not send them out empty-handed. You shall surely provide for them from your flock and from your threshing floor and from your winepress, just as Yahweh your God has blessed you. You shall give to them. And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and Yahweh your God ransomed you. This is very similar to what we find in the New Testament, where Jesus says that we should lend without any expectation of repayment. There's a consistent ethic here, one that very much has implications for how we set up our economy. These verses actually imagine someone in Israel saying, Well, wait, what if someone takes advantage of me and borrows money in year six and doesn't even intend to give it back because they know that the seventh year is coming? What about the freeloaders, in other words? And, well, God says, remember that you were a slave in Egypt. Remember what God did for you with no expectation of being paid back. Be like that in your dealings with money. And there's also an even more direct connection to the racial issues that we're talking about today. When your brother or sister is an indentured servant or slave, God says, when the seventh year comes, you are to send them away by giving to them liberally. The issue of reparations has started to be talked about more in these past months, and as Christians, I don't think we can dismiss such a thing out of hand. I was reading a couple weeks ago about the plan that was announced by General Sherman at the end of the Civil War, that each former enslaved person was going to be given 40 acres out of the plantations where they had been enslaved, in accordance with this biblical principle from Deuteronomy. But then Lincoln was assassinated and the racist Andrew Johnson came to power and the promise was abandoned. And slaves never did get justice in the sense that God lays down in Deuteronomy. They were not sent away with money and property to begin anew. Now, in fact, there's little evidence that Israel ever followed this policy, but that, if anything, should be more reason for us to attempt to make a different, more open-handed, to use the words of Deuteronomy, choice for ourselves. After all, we have seen what the choices Israel made got them in the book of Jeremiah. How can we, as a society, set up black people to succeed is, I think, a question fully aligned with biblical principles of a just society. Now, on to the second topic that I wanted to touch on today, and that is the environment. This one we don't need to spend quite as much time on because it is so abundantly clear in the pages of Scripture that it's very telling that many evangelical Christians choose to ignore what God has to say about our treatment of creation. I had a friend who had moved from, the, from England to the United States uh, who told me that one of the differences that had surprised him about evangelicals here in the United States as compared to those that he had been familiar with in England is that in England, environmentalism is almost the assumed position for evangelicals. They are very much a part of environmental movements there. Here, not so much, but we should be. Humans are created in God's image in Genesis and given the job of being God's representatives in ruling over creation. And Genesis makes clear that what is intended is not a harsh subjugation of creation, but rather the sort of benevolent ruling that God exerts. We are supposed to be like God. Simply put, caring well for the earth is one of our core purposes as humans. It's one of the reasons we're here in the first place. And also, simply put, it's more important than money, period. In a similar way that there was supposed to be a seven-year cycle of forgiving debts and releasing slaves, there was also supposed to be a seven-year cycle of giving the land a rest. In Leviticus 25, verses 2 and following, it says, When you come into the land that I am about to give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to Yahweh. Six years you shall sow your fields and six years you shall prune your vineyards and gather its yields. And in the seventh year, there shall be an absolute Sabbath for the land, a Sabbath to Yahweh. Your field you shall not sow and your vineyard you shall not prune. The aftergrowth of your harvest you shall not reap and the grapes of your untrimmed vines you shall not pick. There shall be an absolute Sabbath for the land. Just like with forgiving debts, there's no evidence that Israel ever followed this command in how to care for the land, which makes sense. Giving up one-seventh of your potential revenues isn't good business. It might care for the earth, but not the bank account. But God takes seriously taking care of creation. In fact, the book of Second Chronicles ends with these words, And God exiled the survivors of the sword to Babylon. And they became slaves to Nebuchadnezzar and his sons until the reign of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of Yahweh through Jeremiah until the land atones for its Sabbath years, all the days of the desolation that it kept a Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. In other words, the reason you will be in exile for 70 years is that you skipped 70 Sabbath years that the land was supposed to enjoy. Now, Jeremiah mentions 70 years, but doesn't explicitly connect it to Israel having not given the land the Sabbath break that they had been commanded to. But Chronicles interprets the exile as one more fitting consequence for the people for not trusting that Yahweh will provide for them and protect them, even if they do something so illogical as to not sow or plant or reap one out of every seven years. Again, this doesn't imply specific policy proposals for us, but it does require that we make caring for the creation which God has entrusted to us a priority for our society. Third, and this is an issue that is currently hot in liberal Claremont, not in my backyard. This is when there's something, infrastructure, housing, landfills, something that is necessary for our society, but I'd rather it not be near me. There's an inescapable racial component to this issue because historically new highways, unpalatable or dangerous infrastructure, high density housing, they're all far more likely to be built in and through and over minority communities than white ones. The New York Times last year had an article about how the transportation system has systematically disadvantaged black communities, but affordable housing is another salient example here. Claremont residents have been pushing back for years on building higher density housing. In Silicon Valley, housing prices are absurd and none of the communities will build more housing to help alleviate the problem. Why? Because building more housing will lower the property values of the people already living in those communities. It is better for society as a whole to build more housing. It is way better for those who are too poor to live in the cities in which they work. But It's worse for the rich. And since the rich are who currently lives and votes in those communities, they can easily use their political power to squash things, to push necessary infrastructure or whatever the project might be out of their community and into hmm, some other community without really thinking too hard about which other community is going to be saddled with that same project. Not in my backyard. It's hard to do, but as followers of Jesus, we have a duty to use our political power and voice and votes to build a society that is good for all, especially the poor and the vulnerable, even when it will mean a hit to our property values or an inconvenience to us. And then last for this week, another topic that is all too obvious, immigration. We've already seen some examples of how scripture talks about the immigrant or what is in the Old Testament usually called the alien or the resident alien. Most likely, this is not someone who immigrated for a job opportunity or something like that. In a society where ownership of land for subsistence farming was the dominant way that people made a living, you don't leave your homeland unless you absolutely have to. An immigrant in that society would be far more likely to be what we might call a refugee than anything else. Someone fleeing famine or drought or disease or war. And the Old Testament is unequivocal about how the people of God are supposed to see and treat those people. There is a consistent refrain, protect the alien, the orphan, and the widow, because you were aliens in the land of Egypt. You know what it's like to be them. It's part of your history. Don't you dare forget it now that you're not vulnerable. I don't think this requires open borders or no laws about immigration, There are all sorts of immigration and refugee policies that would align with what God says over and over and over in the Old Testament. But as followers of Jesus, we should be advocating for kind, generous, humane treatment of those who arrive on our borders, without exception. As in all of these things, we should be erring on the side of generosity and care for the vulnerable, rather than erring on the side of protecting ourselves. There is simply no other biblical way to approach this or these other political issues. And I think that's where we will leave this today. As always, I would, with some trepidation here, invite your feedback. There are, as I said, any number of other things that could be said on these issues, as well as any number of other issues that we could have talked about. But for what we did say here, I feel like we're on pretty solid biblical ground. I hope this is helpful for starting some reflection and discussion for you. There will be some questions you can use if you are so inclined um, on our website, where you can also find a link to our Sunday Zoom worship at 9 a.m. Pacific time. We'd love to see you then. This has been The Backdrop. Until next time. Bye.